Good morning, church. You know, one of the things that makes America unique is that we have so many options to choose from, literally for everything. I mean, for absolutely everything. For instance, in America, there are over 5,000 brands of cereal. 5,000 brands of cereal. I mean, how many kinds of Cocoa Puffs do you need? Uh, there are, at latest count, 993 different kinds of soft drinks. Literally, there are like 40 different kinds of Dr. Peppers. Anyone try them all? Oh, have you? Shame on you. Okay. Uh, this one's unbelievable. There are, there are over 250,000 different fast food chains in the United States. 250,000 fast food restaurant chains. There are over 29,000 different shoe stores. There are 40 different cell phone providers, 3,500 different grocery store chains. There are 14,000 different Starbucks locations across the United States. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. In America, you can have peanut butter any way you darn well want it. Creamy, extra creamy, crunchy, super crunchy, uh, gingerbread peanut butter, pumpkin spice peanut butter, cinnamon raisin, maple honey crunch, chocolate peanut butter. Rich is taking notes. He loves peanut butter. Buy him peanut butter for Christmas if, if you would. If you're feeling kind of lazy and, and you don't want to buy peanut butter and jam, that's okay. We, we put them both in the jar for you, you see? I mean, this is incredible or sad, depending on who you ask. But America is the land of a billion options. It's the land of, of a billion choices. I mean, you don't like one store? An item gets discontinued? Some employee makes you mad? Not a problem at all. You have 10,000 other stores to choose from. And it's great. I mean, I, I mean it. It's, it's really great. And in one sense, we could be thankful that in God's providence, he has lavished us with such over-the-top abundance. And yet, and yet, you should know, living in the land of the free and the home of the convenient does have some drawbacks. That, that does have some negative side effects. That does lull us into some bad habits. You see, what this does is this trains us to be consumers. Consumers who begin to view every single thing in life through the lenses of our convenience and, and comfort and craving for convenience. And that's fine. That's fine when it comes to how you want your peanut butter. But that's not fine when we bring those consumer mentalities into the church. Because when we do that, we forget that we are not consumers shopping for churches. We are a family. We are members of a body. What we are are blood-bought comrades embarking together on the mission of the king and the name for that, the name for that holy codependence upon one another as we strive together towards Christ for the advancement of his kingdom. The name for that in the Bible is membership. That's called membership. And speaking of membership, that's exactly on the menu today as we finish a three-week series on membership, which we call ownership. Membership is ownership. 
And what that means is to be a member of a local church means that you own, you own as if it were your own because it is your own. We own together the mission and the purpose and the burdens of the local church. You see, to be a member means that we are a synergy of souls inseparably connected together by a common life, joined by faith in Christ and that my spiritual growth is your priority. Your spiritual growth is my priority. That's what the Bible means by membership. And you can tell, can't you, if, if that's what membership is, if membership is a covenant, if membership is an oath, if it is an understanding that the maintaining of our faith and our perseverance to the end is a community service project and it is that, then that tells us that the essence of what membership is is love. Membership is love. Ownership is love. And as I said last week, and if you didn't hear last week and you're here only catching part of the membership series, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week but, uh, because this is gonna build on that. But uh, as I said last week, I know all the objections to membership. I've heard all the reasons why people feel uncomfortable with it, and yet the reality is, should we get under our belt what it means to have radical affection for one another? Should we get under our belt what that means? Then affectionate and, if possible, permanent attachment to a local church becomes a total no-brainer. Why? Because we understand that the only context on the planet in which the Christian life even makes any sense is the local church. And speaking of love, that is exactly what Christ unfolds this morning. What it is, why it means everything, and how to love one another in such a way that literally has the potential to change the face of human history. And what makes our text this morning particularly compelling is that the scene is Christ's last meal with his disciples. They're eating together in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem just hours before he is betrayed and then beaten beyond recognition and then publicly crucified. In just a few short hours, Christ is going to be a mutilated lump of bloody flesh hanging on a cross, taking the wrath for hell-deserving sinners, and yet, even with the weight of eternity, crushing his soul like an avalanche, one of the things he wants to give to his disciples and to you is the absolute necessity of radical, affectionate, supernatural love. In fact, what you're about to see is that love, radical love for one another is the compelling evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value. That loving one another is so strategic to the global mission of Jesus Christ that if we don't first have love for one another, there is no mission. Do you feel this this morning? If we do not be and do what he describes here, there is no mission. That's how big this is. That's how high the stakes are. And who doesn't want to be loved? Who doesn't want to love others? That's the calling. That's the calling. And so we finish our series on ownership by looking at the very genetic code of ownership, namely radical love that changes the world. 
So here's where we're going. I don't have those cute little half sheets, so you're going to have to do everything by hand this morning. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see four features. If you like keeping track of things, here's the roadmap. I want you to see four features. Four features of supernatural love. Four features of supernatural love that defines what it means to be owners of the local church. Four features of supernatural love that defines what it means to be owners of the local church. And so let's go to the scene. The scene unfolds in two parts. The first scene is this. First, the traitor revealed. The traitor revealed, verses 21 through 30. And you have to understand that the last several minutes of this scene had been a very bizarre experience for the disciples. Very bizarre. See, they had been with Christ for three years, over three years, and yet they, have this, they all have this brooding sense that something terrible is about to happen. And the reason why they do is because Christ told them it would. And here they are celebrating, trying to celebrate the Passover, the, the biggest day of the year in Israel, like Christmas and Fourth of July all combined. They're in the most hostile and dangerous place on the planet for Christ to be, namely Jerusalem. He's got a price on his head. He's got a target on his chest. And, and right this minute, they are eating what turns out to be their last meal together in a rented upstairs room before Christ is arrested and tortured and publicly executed. And, and one of the things you remember that makes this experience such a bizarre time for the disciples is that in the middle of dinner, Christ gets up from the table, walks over to the side, strips down to his underwear in front of everyone, puts on a towel, puts water in a bowl, and then one by one by one begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And they don't know what to make of this. Wait, I'm sorry, hold on, what? Uh, the Lord? The King? The infinitely worthy when God himself in human flesh washing our feet, we should be washing his feet. Why would he do this? Because he was making a statement. And the statement was clear and undeniable. Part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian is radical, affectionate sacrifice for one another. And yet if they thought that was weird, nothing could have prepared them for what Christ said next. Look at verse 21. After Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit. And he testified and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you shall betray me. All of a sudden, like storm clouds eclipsing the light of the sun, John says that Christ became troubled in spirit. All of a sudden, his countenance totally changed. He became grim and disturbed and maybe even trembling. That word troubled in the, in the Greek world, that, that described the boiling of water or the, the confusion of a battlefield or the delirium that you experience when you're sick with a fever. And so he puts his fork down and he looks him right in the eye and he says, truly, truly, I say to you. And you know, you know that when Christ says those words, he is about to make a bombshell announcement, which is exactly what he does. And look what it is, verse 21. One of you shall betray me. Think about that. One of you. Not some creep out there somewhere. Not some 
weirdo or villain lurking out there in the shadows. One of you, someone in this very room, someone, one of the 12, someone sitting at this very table will betray me. Now, now Christ had been talking about his death for years, that that was not new. Now, the disciples didn't really understand the full import of that, but at least at some level, they kind of understood that he had to die. But a betrayal? A double-crossing inside man who would betray him and lead to his death, that was new. That was an absolute sucker punch to the gut. And you would think, you would just think that the second that Christ talks about a betrayer, that every head in the room would turn and look at Judas. Oh, a betrayer, you say? Oh, well, obviously, it's Judas. I called that months ago. Do you remember that? No, that's not what happened. Look at verse 22. The disciples were looking at one another, literally being perplexed as to who it is he was talking about. <laughs> they had no idea. They did not have a clue that Judas was the double agent. John says that they just kept looking at one another, literally being perplexed as to who it was he was talking about. Judas was the last one they would have ever suspected. You know why? Because verse 29 says that he was trusted to carry the money belt and the debit card and the checkbook. He was probably considered the most legit guy on the whole stinking team. They had no idea. In fact, the other gospel writers make it clear that they suspected themselves way before they suspected Judas. In fact, in verse chapter, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 19, it says that when he made his bombshell announcement about a traitor, that one of, each one of them, one by one, looked at Christ and said, it's not me, is it? They didn't know. But Christ knew. And he had always known, even before the foundation of the world, who would betray him. But as you could guess, the disciples are, are staggered. And, and, and the other gospels reveal that at this moment, the room is in this quiet chaos because the disciples are whispering and gesticulating and debating with one another as who the traitor could possibly be. Meanwhile, meanwhile, something is happening right under their noses and they don't even notice. Look at verse 23. John describes one of the disciples reclining on the floor, leaning against Christ. You see, in that day in Israel, they didn't do tables and chairs they sat on the floor. They had low to the ground, U-shaped tables, and they sat on the floor on the outside of the table. Christ is in the middle as the host of the party. To his left is the guest of honor, and to his right is this disciple whom, this disciple leaning up against Christ. And notice, notice how John describes this leaning disciple. He calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you know who this is? This is John. This is him. This is John. Three times John names this unnamed disciple, and each time he describes him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And by a simple process of elimination, it becomes clear that this disciple is none other than John himself. Now, you could take this the wrong way and view this as an arrogant way for him to identify himself, or you can take it the way John meant it, which is incredible. I mean, he could have identified himself by another way, his name, his, his job, the books that he published that made it into the canon of Holy Scripture, but he doesn't because the only thing that he has to say about himself is that he is a sinner loved by Jesus Christ. 
All I am, he says, all I am is the object of the sovereign love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a sweeter way to identify yourself than as the object of infinite love and mercy. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing about us is not our title, it's not our education, it's not our career, it's not our money, it's not our legacy, it's not our family or any of our other accomplishments. The only thing at the end of the day that really, ultimately, truly matters is that we have been loved and cared for by infinite love and mercy. But I digress. John's a young disciple, maybe even a teenager. And here he is leaning on Christ, and from across the table, someone, someone is trying to get his attention. Look at verse 24. Simon Peter, therefore, signaled to him in order to ask him who he could possibly be talking about. So, you know that thing from across the room? where you're in a room of people and you could just feel someone trying to get your attention with their mind powers. Usually for me, it's my wife saying, we have got to go and I'm talking and just the signal and there's this face I could just see, oh, yep, okay, I, I, get, what, I get what's going. That, that's what this was here. And, and the Greek text literally notes that, that Peter nods or signals, does something to him to ask John, to, to ask Christ who possibly who the betrayer could be. And apparently gestures are worth a thousand words here because whatever signal that Peter gave, John understood exactly what he meant. So the text indicates that he leans back on Jesus' chest and he looks him in the eyes and he says, Kurie, Tisestin, Lord, who is it? And what happens next is absolutely profound and dramatic. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, and he said, He it is to whom I shall dip the bread, and I shall give it to him. So stop right there. You, you, you need to prepare right now to have your mind absolutely blown here. This is, this is staggering. Christ reveals, agrees to reveal to John the identity of the betrayer, but he's going to do so in a way that is provocative and dramatic. Again, keep in mind here, no one else is seeing this. Not really. No one else is really uh, paying attention. They're too distracted, debating with one another as who the, who the debater, who the betrayer could be. The only ones watching this go down, the only ones really paying attention in this moment are Christ and John to his right and Peter from across the room and whoever the betrayer is who is sitting directly to Christ's left. And I want you to notice very carefully the method by which Christ would expose the traitor. He says, John... The betrayer is the one to whom I shall dip the bread and I shall give it to him. Which sounds weird, I admit. But at the Passover meal, there was this kind of traditional ceremony where the host of the dinner, he would take a piece of bread and he would dip it in this kind of sauce or hummus kind of thing and he would give it then to the guest of honor. Kind of, sort of like giving the birthday boy the first piece of cake at the party. In this Passover meal, you would dip the first piece of bread and you would give it to the guest of honor. See, what this was, was a, a Middle Eastern act of uh, cultural act of friendship and kindness and hospitality. And so you, you feel the irony of this, right? 
Christ is at the head of the table as the host of the party. And, and Christ is going to dip the bread and he's going to give it to the guest of honor and to whom he gives it is not only the guest of honor, but also just happened to be the double-crossing deadbeat that was going to betray him. I mean, think about this. Christ made Judas the guest of honor. He didn't have to do it this way. He could have just said, all right, shut up, shut up, everyone. Listen to me. The one who's going to betray me is Judas. And then they all gang up on him and beat the snot out of him, right? No. Christ quietly exposed the traitor with an act of grace and friendship and Middle Eastern hospitality. And think about it, no one is watching this go down. None of the other disciples are watching this. Christ is quietly and privately doing this just inches away from Judas's face. And you know why, don't you? Why he made him the guest of honor? Why he exposed Judas's backstabbing plot with an act of kindness and, and gracious hospitality? You know why. You know exactly why he did that. He did that because he loved Judas. That's why. And if Judas was going to betray him, if Judas was going to hand him over to the wolves to be devoured, he's going to have to look him in the eye and do it in the face of unbelievable kindness and gracious generosity. And is that at all surprising to us? That Christ loves his betrayer? That he would die for his enemies? I mean, is that at all a surprise to us? No, I think we saw that coming, did we not? Because you see, that's who Jesus Christ is is not some timid pushover but he is a savior a savior who came to the planet that he created to die for the very people who sinned against him and here we are a room full of judases loved and rescued by sovereign grace and so watch now, almost in slow motion, as Christ reveals the identity of this fiend to John and Peter. John is literally watching this unfold just inches from his face. Look at the end of verse 26. After he dipped the bread, therefore, he took it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. <laughs> Did you see it? Did you see how Christ drew out this moment as long as possible, almost as if he was trying to give Judas time to, to reconsider and change his mind? Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Look at verse 27. And after the bread, or after the, the morsel of the bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, therefore, what you do, do it quickly. Isn't that interesting? and tragic, and terrifying. Judas takes the bread, looks Christ in the eye, and he puts it in his mouth, and the second he does so, Satan possesses him, empowers him, controls him, and eventually destroys him. Apparently there are some jobs so important in the kingdom of darkness that only Satan himself will do them. This was not a job for some low-level demonic intern. No, no, this kind of job required the prince of darkness himself. And interestingly, Judas is the only person described in the Bible as being possessed by Satan himself. Demonic possessions are a dime a dozen, but being possessed by the dragon himself, Judas alone bears that honor. 
There's a question that we can have, that we have, and, and, and it haunts us, and we can all feel it, can't we? The question is, why at this moment? Why here? What I mean is, why is it that that, in, that exact moment when he took the bread and put it in his mouth, why was that the moment for the serpent to strike? And the reason is, is because this moment right here between, between Christ and Judas, this was a critical juncture for Judas. This gesture of love from Christ was a final appeal to Judas to come back and join him. He didn't have to go down that road. He didn't have to go. Christ was, as it were, throwing him the rope into the pit into which he was descending, but instead of climbing the rope, instead of melting in repentance, he severed the rope and fully surrendered to his own lusts and in that moment made him most susceptible to the evil one. And being God, Christ immediately saw him be possessed by Satan and knowing that Judas was lost for good and there was no point dragging this thing out any longer. Look what he says to Satan's puppet at the end of verse 27. What you do, do it quickly. In other words, get out. Get out. Do whatever it is that you think you got to do. Finish what you started, Judas. Which is exactly what he does. And you'll notice in verse 28 that this finally got the disciples' attention I mean, they all heard Christ tell Judas to leave, but they still don't have a clue what's going on. Look at the text. It says, but this, no one at the table knew for why he said this to him. They had no idea still. No idea that Judas was the double crosser. Again, verse 29 says that since Judas, Judas carried all the cash that he was gonna go buy groceries or gonna make a donation to the poor, that Judas was the last one they ever expected Imagine the looks on their faces in the garden when, when Judas comes in leading a, a group of thugs and brutes with their pitchforks and torches to take Christ away. You know, it's kind of like those stories of friends and neighbors testifying about someone who's a serial killer. You ever, you ever hear that? The most ironic thing about those stories is that you know, it, almost the testimony is never you know what? I knew it. He was the creepiest guy I ever met. I always knew that if there were to be a serial killer, he'd be it. That's almost never what they say. Almost always family and friends and, and neighbors are surprised to hear that the guy, the nice guy across the street that mows his lawn and takes out the garbage was stashing dead bodies in the basement. That's what this is. So look finally at verse 30. After he, that is Judas, after he took the bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. With the food that Christ gave him still between his teeth and the pocket change that the Pharisees had given him to betray Christ still jangling around in his pocket, Judas goes out into the Jerusalem night, the most scandalous and beautiful night in human history. You see, one of the things that makes this episode with Judas so profound and, and surprisingly devotional is that the scriptures make it so clear that although Christ was double-crossed, God had already double-crossed the double-crosser, hadn't he? Even before the foundation of the world. 
twice. Twice Christ says that the Old Testament long, long ago predicted his very betrayal in in, in very specific detail, even down to the very piece of bread itself. And so even though Judas and the Sanhedrin and Satan himself did their worst on this night, they soon discovered that all the schemes they, they came up with to destroy Christ were the very things that God had designed to exalt Christ. It had all been predestined. And I'm not saying that's easy to understand. I'm just saying that is what the text says. So here's the application for your lives. Some of you, many of you, have endured things in life that are grim and painful and excruciating, things that you would never wish on your worst enemies. And if you haven't, the odds are looking good that you will probably. And, and sometimes from our really limited perspective, the, the things that we endure, the pain that we endure seems so random. It feels so arbitrary. It's, it seems so meaningless. Why this? Why is this happening to me? Especially at this time in my life, why is this happening to me? And yet, don't you see, God deliberately ordains what appears to be setbacks even to his own plan. Things like the betrayal of Judas, for instance, all so that later on we will marvel at the infinite genius and brilliance of God. You see, no one, and I mean no one, ever forces God to do anything that he has not already predestined to do for all eternity. There is no plan B. You see, the most vicious backstabbing in history the very, was the very design of God to lead to the death of Christ that would bring salvation to the world. And so the point is this. God planning the betrayal of Judas is your assurance that God is just as loving and intentional with the pain and injustices that you endure also. And that brings us next to the commandment bestowed. The commandment bestowed in verses 31 through 35. With a Satan-possessed Judas out of the room, Christ can now begin the most significant theological huddle in history, otherwise known as the upper room discourse. The timer's now been set. The clock is ticking. And now Christ is down to his final moments with his disciples as he begins to embark on the very reason for why he came. And speaking of that reason, look very carefully at verses 31 and 32. When he, that is Judas, went out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God shall glorify him in himself and he shall glorify him immediately. That's a lot of glory there. Five times in two verses, he talks about glory. I guess it's kind of a big deal. And it is a big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal in the universe. And look at the chain reaction of the text. This is not insignificant. When Judas departed, when he departed, then Christ said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Meaning what? Meaning with Judas now off to stab him in the back. 
and about to endure an all-night escapade of being beaten within an inch of his life and crucified. There's no turning back now, is there? And all this talk here about the moment of his glory is really profound, isn't it? Because you know that Christ and John all throughout this gospel keep talking about the hour of Christ, the hour of his glory, the moment of his glory. All throughout the gospel of John. And what's really interesting is that it keeps saying things like this. They could not arrest him because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't kill him because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't seize him because his hour had not yet come. But here, the hour has come. It's here. It's arrived. But, but the hour for what? I'll tell you what. Not 60 minutes on a clock, but the sovereignly appointed time of his greatest achievements. See, the hour you see was his 15 minutes of fame the meaning of his mission, the purpose of the plan, the very reason why he showed up to the planet in the first place and why did he show up? You know why, you know exactly why. The hour, the moment of his glory was to be crucified for sinners and then conquer the grave. Three days later, that was the hour of his glory, which is kind of a big deal. Because his sin-bearing death and his grave-defying resurrection were the key to the entire operation. The time is urgent here. Christ doesn't have much time left with his disciples. In fact, he no longer has hours. He is now down to minutes with his disciples. And you can, you can feel it in the urgency of his voice. Look at verse 33. Little children, I'm only with you a little while. You will seek me. And even as I said to the Jews that where I go, you are not able to follow, so I also say to you now. I mean, notice the, the urgency and tenderness in his voice as he calls grown men, not just children, but little children. Little children, I can only stay for a little while. I have to go. I have to leave and and the worst part of all is, you can't come with me. You're going to want to, but you can't. I have to go. You have to stay. Which after three years of being with him, hearing him say that was nothing short of traumatic. But you see, that's the point. Christ can't stay with them. He has to leave. He has to go and be mutilated. He has to go and be murdered, which means these final words from Christ are the gallows speech of the Son of Man. These are the last words to his disciples designed to help them, not just, not just comfort them for a few days while they grieve, but words even designed to empower them to a global mission of undaunted courage. That's how big this is. And guess what is the first subject on the list? You'll never guess. You have guessed because the text was read and you know the text, but look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another even as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that interesting? 
Isn't that interesting that out of all the things he could talk about to begin the final speech to his disciples to empower them for a global mission of undaunted courage, with what does he begin? He begins with love. Which brings us to the first feature that defines what it means to be owners of the local church. The first feature is this, number one, love is the catalyst for a global mission. Love is the catalyst for a global mission. And you know what a catalyst is, right? I mean, it's the, it's the power that produces something. It's the chain reaction that causes something to happen. And, and the point is, out of all the things that Christ could identify as the catalyst for this global mission, what does he say? Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you should love one another. There it is. <laughs> he begins with love. You see, he's preparing them and us for a mission. A global mission of undaunted courage, which means if we don't first have love for one another, there is no mission. And here's the question. That, that mission to infiltrate the darkness and build churches, and stand with your toes on eternity, and plead with ruined sinners to be saved, that mission has been given to whom? Not first to missions agencies. Not first to seminaries. Not first to parachurch organizations, important though they may be. No, that mission has been given to the church. And to succeed in that mission, what does the church need? The catalyst for the mission is love. It's love, and love is the essence of what membership is. And membership at its core, get this now, membership at its core is a covenant that you make to make the spiritual growth of one another your top priority. Which brings us to the second feature of what it means to be owners of the local church. The second feature of what it means to be owners of the local church. Number two, the cutting edge nature of Christian love. The cutting edge nature of Christian love. Because notice very carefully what Christ says. A new commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you should love one another. Now, Hold on a second. I think that's called plagiarism, isn't it? This, he, he gives this command to love one another and he calls it a new command as if this is the first time we've ever heard it. As if, it's, as if this has never been talked about before when, when Moses 1,500 years earlier talked about loving one another in Leviticus 19. This isn't a new commandment. Oh, but it is. But it is though. You know why? Two reasons. One, this command to love one another is a new commandment, not in the sense that love was never the expectation for God's people because it was always the expectation. But it's a new commandment in the sense that the kind of love about which Christ speaks cannot be performed without a new heart. In other words, the essence of what makes one a Christian 
is this miracle called being born again, which God literally has to perform in your soul for you to be saved. And unless that happens, you cannot and you will not love in the way that Christ commands. This kind of love about which he speaks, this is not normal. This is supernatural. This is unattainable. This is impossible without the miracle of sovereign grace in regeneration. This can only happen for a redeemed group of people, which indicates why the stakes are so high. Because, because if we don't love one another in the way that Christ is describing, the world will not see the supernatural and the kind of love about which he speaks is the essence of supernatural. And yet the question is, what, okay, what does radical affection, supernatural love look like in a local church? Because I'm arguing that what it looks like is contained in what it means to be a member of the local church. And you might ask the question, well, does the Bible command us to become members of the local church? Does it command that? No, it, it doesn't. It says that you are already members of the universal church by virtue of your faith in Christ. But how that membership expresses itself is in an affectionate and, if possible, permanent attachment to a local body of redeemed souls where you use your spiritual gifts to help one another prize and pursue Christ as the treasure of their souls. That is membership. But the second reason why love is a new commandment is because the standard of what love is has radically changed. That brings us to number three, you're almost home. The unparalleled standard of Christian love. The unparalleled standard of Christian love. Because you know just as well as I do that most religions, heck, probably even all religions in the world talk about love. And yet you should know not all love is created equal. I mean, just because they use the word love doesn't mean that they actually have it, nor that it's the same thing about which Christ speaks. And it is profoundly not the same thing about which Christ speaks. Because you'll notice the command, the command is not merely to love, but to love according to the highest standard that could possibly exist. Look at verse 34. This is breathtaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. Here it is. Even as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. See that right there is the bottom line reason why this is a new commandment because never before in the history of the world is the standard of what love is so exceptionally high. See, Christ is not calling us to love one another better than we did before, but to love one another like he has loved. And how has he loved us? That's an interesting question, isn't it? How has God the Son, the infinite God who became man for us and for our salvation, how has he loved us? That's a devastating question, and I can think of three ways, at least three ways, that the Son of God has loved you. He has loved you eternally. He has loved you unconditionally, and He has loved you sacrificially. He has loved you eternally. He has loved you unconditionally, and He has loved you sacrificially. In other words, He has loved you forever. 
He has loved you with no strings attached and he has displayed that love by dying in your place. Taking the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. He, that is how he loved you and when you translate that into what it looks like in a local church, that becomes profound, doesn't it? Because what does that look like? What does that kind of love look like when displayed in a local church? And I give you the list almost every week. Pray for one another. Speak the truth to one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. If so, if, if need be, even rebuke one another. Love one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be devoted to one another. Bear one another's burdens. That, that, all of that is the love of Christ absorbed and displayed into a local church. And yet the question is, what are the effects of that kind of love? What are the ripple effects of that kind of love in a local church and in a city and in the world? That's a great question and that brings us finally to the fourth feature of what it looks like to be owners, members of a local church. Number four, the chain reaction of Christian love. The chain reaction of Christian love. Notice very carefully what Christ says the chain reaction is when we have that kind of love. Look at verse 35. He says, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples. Stop there. How? How, Christ? How will the world know that we are your disciples? How will they know that we are radically attached and recklessly abandoned to you, that you mean more to us than anything on the face of the planet because that's what it means to be a disciple. How will they know? You know the answer, but it's no less profound. Look at the text. By this all shall know that you are my disciples if, if, if you have love for one another. It's devastating, isn't it? And weighty and glorious. The world will be forced to admit that Jesus Christ is authentic, not when we have emotionally ecstatic experiences, not when we have unexplainable supernatural occurrences, not when we have professionally run services and programs, not when we have culturally relevant and engaging methods, but the world will know that we are the real deal when we have love for one another. And this is incredible. Love is the compelling apologetic witness to the world that Jesus Christ is real and that he means more to us than anything on the face of the planet. And so the question is, what is love then? I'll define it, I'll say what it looks like, and then we're done. What is love? And that's not a hard question to answer at all. Because love means that in every situation, every event, every interaction, every conversation, you seek to mediate and display Whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment, that is love. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel that. 
Love means that at every event, every situation, every interaction, every conversation, you mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. In other words, love is you making tangible the most glorious and beautiful person in the universe, namely Jesus Christ himself. And what I'm arguing is that is the essence of what membership, ownership in the local church is. Think about it. When, when you come here on a Sunday morning, or any other event for that matter, when you, when you walk through those doors, do you think, I am about to enter into a house of pain and also a house of healing? See, you need to know this. There are hurting people in this room even as we speak. And they need from you, they desperately need from you Christ-exalting hope and encouragement and counsel. They, they need you to speak the word of God into their lives. And, and whether you know it or believe it or not, you also need that from them. That is how the body works. And so when I talk about membership, all I'm talking about is what the Bible calls you to anyway, which is wounded sinners, repairing wounded sinners with the word of God so that we all can go back out there and fight in the trenches of the great commission. And when unbelievers visit our church on a Sunday morning and they see this kind of thing happening, 1 Corinthians 14 says that they will fall on their face and they will say, God is in this place. Jesus Christ is real and I can see him in you. That, that is what we're after. That is what we're after because that is ownership. That is the church. Very simple, practical application. We are gonna have a membership, or again, as we call it, ownership. There will be an ownership class in November to the beginning of December. So if you are not a co-owner of Christ Community Church, we invite you to be a part of that, uh, to, to be a part, a connected part of, of, of Christ Community. We would love to have you do that. More details to come. So let's pray, and then we'll have a few announcements and then a closing benediction. Oh Lord, what a stellar text this is. And Lord, even though Christ was not talking at all about membership, Lord, what he did, oh Father, talk about is the essence of what membership, and that is love. And I, and I pray for that. I need that in my heart. I am self-driven, self-focused, self-propagating, self-righteous. I am all the ugly selves. And I need you, oh Lord, to, to give me eyes to see outside of myself. And I can only assume, Lord, that there are others who struggle with that too. And I pray that you would help us, oh Lord, to, to be a family, to be a body, to be a, a blood-bought battalion of souls embarking together on the most high-stakes mission in the universe. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would help us to do the body life of the church the way you call us to do the body life. I pray that your word would transform us and renovate us and refurbish us and renew us, that our hearts would be so full of your word because of the week that we would come in here and our mouths would be a fountain of life to one another. Oh, Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for the design that it is. Not that it's not clunky on our end, Lord, because it is, but that is all the more reason why we need to trust and cling to you for your power.
So Lord, we thank you for this. Pray that you would help us to be owners, co-owners, not spectators of ministry, but shareholders of ministry, not observers of ministry, but owners of the Great Commission. We thank you for this time. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.